You're listening to Season 2, Episode 17 of the Attempt Adventure Podcast, a podcast all about travel, finding adventure every day, and seeking out little and interesting ways to make your life more interesting. From Bangkok, Thailand, I'm your host, Michael DeRosiers, joined as always by my co-host, James Barrett from Dallas, Texas, currently. Uh, James, it has been a year. We're at the end of the year, and we are wrapping up our final few episodes, and they're all going to be coming out, mm-hmm. hopefully before New Year's. Um, it's been kind of crazy. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry to our guests who have been on the show, and I'm sorry to our listeners who have been waiting for episodes. But uh, there's just the two of us, and it's not easy sometimes. So yeah. maybe things will be a little different next year, but uh, hang on. Hang tight for that. Yeah, in a, in a perfect world, we'd probably be like, I don't know, neighbors. Yeah, well, true. And that would be way easier. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the but distance and the time zones don't do us any favors, do they? They really hurt. Like, sometimes it's okay, but... Because, like, if I, in the morning, like, I have, you know, stuff I got to do. And in the morning, you have stuff you have to do. So it yeah. has to be before a certain time or after a certain time. Right. And I work, usually on weekends, I work. That's the problem, too. So it has to be like a weekday for you. <laughs> it's like a weekday evening. Yeah. We try and we're we're trying to be better. Yeah. I mean, I really do enjoy doing this show and I want to keep up mm-hmm. at it and, and keep it going. So um, there will be another episode. I think we'll, we'll make an announcement about that, but we're looking for help. So if anyone here has any skills, especially maybe social media marketing or audio video editing skills, maybe hit us up. Uh, we can't pay, but it'd be of the goodness of your heart it would go on your portfolio if you <laughs> mm, that's true so uh, that's yeah, but, true. but you know what if you help us build a great product and we monetize then yeah we would pay you so you know it'd be an investment in your future <laughs> you know and beyond that just tips if there are any other podcasters out there that listen to this mm-hmm. if how do you guys do it yeah like and I think the biggest thing is that we both enjoy doing this. It's not like we view it as a chore. No, not at all. You know all. what I mean? No, it's, right. And, and I'm, afraid, I keep, I'm afraid that's how it comes across because we put out a bunch and then we just stop. Um, but we both really like doing this and otherwise we would have just not do it. <laughs> we can... If we didn't want to record it, we could just get on Skype and talk to each other for an hour. Exactly, right. Yeah, which we do sometimes. But Yeah. So I think any advice would be also welcome. Just time management. We both have jobs, mm-hmm. and we both have families, and we both have lives. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard sometimes logistically to make everything work. That's really our issue. And it takes a lot of time to put out the show notes. It takes a lot of time to edit the show and produce it. So... Uh, we are doing the best yeah, we can. I mean, we might have a slightly different format next year for season three, but there yeah. will be a season three, definitely. So, yes, we yeah. are not. We are not quitting. There will be no a season three. Just way. probably some changes, just to help us. In any case, James, it's been a little while. Um, today, today's episode is one that I've been really excited about for a long time. Uh, it is actually an interview with one of my brother's friends uh, named Yona. He has a really fantastic initiative where uh, he leads cultural tours in Morocco's Jewish Quarter as a sort of uh, bridge building, cultural bridge building enterprise, I guess, social enterprise. Um, It's a really fascinating thing that he does. And we 
uh, get together to talk about cultural experiences, you know, ethical cultural tourism, and how to build bridges through travel. Mm. It's going to be a great interview. You're really going to like it. And I don't know if you know this, Morocco is one of my favorite countries that I know very little about. <laughs> I did a full report on Morocco in college, so it is a never been want to go very badly rooting for them in the world cup. You know, it's, you know, I got to cook some Moroccan food. I got to, you know, talk to some people from Morocco. It was just, it's a very interesting, very beautiful, very vibrant country and diverse. So Michael. Yes, James. You have, we have been up to a lot. Yes, since we have. we last spoke. What? The last time we really spoke, you, we were physically in the same area. So what have you been up to since then? Well, I've been up for I've been up to a lot. Um, in fact, yesterday I did something brand new. I went to the uh, Thai Red Cross Fair out at Lumpini Park here in Bangkok, and yeah, all the money goes to raise funds for the Red Cross. But there was tons of great food, like street food and Thai carnival food, and uh, lots of games you could play. It's like mm-hmm. every uh, government branch had a like a booth or like a little little carnival area, and you could play a game and win some prizes. So, like, the uh, Department of the Interior had this game where you tried to catch, like, a little, like, paper butterfly on a hook, and it had a number on it, and you could get a prize. And, yeah, I mean, you got to buy tickets, but, you know, Department of the Navy had the thing where you go fishing, and you pull up a little plastic fish, and you redeem it for a prize. And the uh, Department of Corrections had, like, a bake sale. (laughs) Um, And the the Thai Army Wives Association had a game, and I won. I won this Pikachu tumbler. This really nice yeah, adorable. <laughs> metal Pikachu tumbler. I know. So I've got my uh, iced coffee in here this morning. Is Pokemon big in Thailand like it is elsewhere? I mean, probably the same as in the U.S. It's just, it's pop culture, you know? It's just a it's just it's great. pop culture now. It's just good. It's great. Yeah. It was nice to be out and, and doing something. So what about you, James? Have you done anything new or adventurous oh, that you haven't done before recently? Definitely started um, really working on my fitness and my health. That's what mainly over the past month and a half, something like that. I've done it before, but it's going really well. So that'll be my new one for this episode. Started that again. I'm already feeling way better. Lost quite a bit Mm -hmm. of weight already. Just being good. I'm tired of being that guy. Great. So. No, I think that's really, that's really good. And you know, when you're feeling better and you have more energy and you're healthier, you'll be able to do more adventures and stuff as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. What are the biggest changes that you've noticed you know like in the uh the lose it subreddit what they call the the non-scale victories mm. your biggest non-scale victories that you've noticed um i'm definitely stronger and like i can tell the difference in how my clothes are starting to fit nice nice like i don't you know when you put on a shirt you kind of like stretch it out because you're uncomfortable you're like, i don't have to do that yeah, with like my shirts anymore which is great so so far that's been the biggest one well awesome james good for you i think Thank that's you. really fantastic Hi, Michael. I'm so glad to be on your show. My name is Yona Bedour. I was born and raised in Fez. Mm. Uh, it's uh, the oldest city in Morocco, as we, you know, proudly oh, wow. love to share with the world. <laughs> Ten years ago, it celebrated 12 centuries oh, wow. of, um, yeah. Wow. It actually harbors the first, well, reportedly the first university 
in the world, which is Al Karawiyin University. Wow. That was founded by a woman in the ninth century, even older than Oxford. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I, that's that's <laughs> yeah. So we Fezzi people, Fezzi meaning like people from Fez. We really like that part of um, you know the historical aspect of our city. Right. I then moved to Casablanca, where I lived also for a few years. And Casablanca is the largest city in Morocco. It is its economic capital. Mm-hmm. And it is a vibrant, you know, city where, you know, it opens to the ocean. And I'm sure from the film Casablanca, yeah. the Americans must be familiar oh, yeah, with definitely. this name. Although the film <laughs> does not, you know, do good to the city itself. Right. Meaning you almost see you no know, Casablanca. I think it was even filmed in Tangier in another city, <laughs> if not in the Hollywood studios. Well, but, um, and most of the film, nice. if I remember, takes place indoors anyway. So you don't get, to, you don't get a exactly. good impression. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, a funny thing, um, you know, in the film, they mentioned this cafe that's called Rick's Cafe, yeah. right? Where, yeah. you know, the, there's a the pianist with his fez and, right. you know, the ambiance. Now, there is today a cafe, well, this place called Rick's Cafe uh-huh. in Casablanca that is recreated, like the, you know, from the film. So oh, they re, like they re created, reimagined uh, how, you know, from the film, actually, the, the place of today is inspired from the film and not the other way around. Gotcha. That's and so awesome. it attracts a lot of tourists, I bet it of does. course, especially That's American right, yeah. tourists, because they, right. they think, you know, that is the original, um, you know, place where the film took place but actually it's the other way around so that's, <laughs> that's a funny, funny thing um so and in 2016 i moved to israel mm-hmm. where i currently reside um i did a program a volunteering program to learn a bit about the complexity of the israeli and palestinian societies mm-hmm. and since then i've been living here in israel i'm doing a phd in anthropology and um history about the Moroccan Jewish identities in France and Israel. So I've been also traveling a lot between Israel, France, my you know, original country, Morocco, and um, I enjoy it so much. So cool. That is really awesome. I mean, very different countries, but there's definitely some, uh, some common connections between them, uh, which is a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but before we do that, I've got a more general question that I always like to ask our guests, and that is, what does adventure mean to you? What is adventure? I would say adventure for me is exploring the unknown and being open to whatever it might bring. It could be a good experience that you would enjoy it, you know, and it gives you that sense of ecstasy because it's new. It's right. or it can, you know, end up being for the moment a negative experience that eventually it'll, you know, make a good story. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on was to talk about the the programs that you're involved with, your uh, cultural and educational project. So yeah, tell me about that. So what do you do? So, you know, growing up in Morocco, which is predominantly a Muslim country, mm-hmm. and it has a Jewish minority. So growing up as a minority in this Muslim majority mm-hmm. meant, you know, a lot of influences both ways. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of influence on Moroccan Judaism that comes from Islam and Sufism and the Muslim um, culture, and pretty much also the other way around, be it, you know, Jewish influence in terms of food, for example, music, right. uh, even linguistically, the language, like the, the Jewish dialect might have, you know, also influences on the Moroccan dialect, the Moroccan Arabic dialect. Oh, wow. And so 
I was really hard, like I was very much interested in how in these two communities, how they live together, you know, not only the good times, but also the hard time. And so when I went to university, that was one of my um, academic interests and research interests, that is studying the history of Moroccan Jewry, um, studying, for example, the history of the Jewish quarter. And, you know, I grew up in Fez, as I said earlier, and Fez has it, the first Jewish quarter in Morocco oh, that we wow. call in Moroccan Arabic, Melah. Melah means, um, actually, it comes from the word salt in both Hebrew and Arabic. And it, the quarter where the Jews lived before it was, um, it was a salt market that, you know, ex- the Jews who were working there in this salt market, and that's where the naming comes from. And so I was very much interested in, in learning more about it. And so I did not, I was not born in the Jewish quarter because, you know, starting Morocco was under um, colonial or what's, you know, politically correct, the French protectorate right. from 1912 until 1956, meaning like the Jews already, they started like because of emancipation, they started um, leaving the Jewish quarter and, you know, uh, living outside of the walled gates right, of, okay. um, of the walled quarter. So the Jews moving out of the Jewish quarter, they resided in um, the new uh, city that was built by the French, meaning eventually Jews were no longer tied, like, like they did not have to live in the Jewish quarter as before. Now, because of my research, I was going a lot to the Jewish quarter, meeting people who were born there, be it the rabbi, be, be it uh, researchers, historians, and, you know, learning like as much as I could about this, the stories, not only the historical aspect, but also the cultural aspect and societal aspect within the Jewish quarter. So the Jewish quarter in Morocco neighbors the royal palace. OK, and that is for different reasons. Between brackets, you know, Jews as a, as a minority within a Muslim majority, they had a status called uh, dimmis. Dimmis means... Um, According to Islam, both Jews and Christians are considered Ahl Kitab, which means people of the book. You might have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. And so because they are people of the book, they can live within a Muslim majority, but they needed to pay jizya, a kind of a poll tax, a yearly poll tax in return for protection. And that's what explains why the Jewish quarter is physically located next to the royal palace. Mm. And so... I was in one of my, you know, fieldwork um, interviews and the meetings in the Mela, in the Jewish quarter. I was standing by the royal palace and I was surprised to see that um, a group, I think of Americans or maybe tourists in general, a large group, pretty much, you know, with a tour guide, a local tour guide, yes. who they were, st- they were standing before um, the gate of the royal palace, a magnificent one, mm-hmm. beautiful, colorful, with handwork, with handicraft from, you know, different cities. And it took him about 20 minutes just to explain, you know, the gate, just, you know, where everything came from, what was the like so gift elaborate. to the sultan. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. I was very much fascinated. And in the end, he said... As a footnote, he pointed to the Jewish quarter and he said, and this is the Jewish quarter. Let's get back to the bus. Mm. And you could see the curiosity in people's faces. What? What did he say? Jewish quarter in Morocco? Are there Jews in Morocco? You know, all these kind of um, question marks. Because until recently, until maybe the last two um, decades, Morocco did not invest much in its Jewish history and culture and tourism. and so. 
you will not necessarily find, for example, in a tour guide, like in a tour guide book, you know, any aspect on the Jewish, you know, the Jewish history and culture of Morocco. That, that was then and there where I decided that I need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jewish quarter has a large history. It, you know, it speaks about, you know, Jews were in Morocco more than 2000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a history that deserves to be told and a story that must be told. And that's where I had the idea to start a project that is called uh, Bab Melah, the Jewish Quarter. Bab Melah literally means the gate of the Jewish Quarter. As I said, Melah means the Jewish Quarter. And so it is actually a cultural and educational project that means to revive the Jewish history and story of the Jewish Quarters, not only in Fez, but throughout Morocco. So well, how do you do that? So what do you do in this project? It is pretty much um, organizing tours uh-huh. um, to people who are interested. So once I started the project, it raised a lot of interest, not only among Moroccans, but also among internationals who wanted to yeah. come and visit. And there was a New York Times article about it, actually. Wow. And different, you know, media coverage, etc. Because it was big, you know, for a Moroccan Jew to organize a tour to the Jewish Quarter that is you know, that tells not only, you know, dates and when was the synagogue built and who built it, but, you know, inside stories. So the idea is to organize a tour within the Jewish quarter that takes, you know, following an itinerary. So, of course, starting with historical background to understand where the Jews come from, how did they arrive to Morocco, uh, what was their status, what languages did they speak, how were they involved within the larger society, how were they viewed by the larger Muslim society? Uh, what did they go through? You know, there were also pogroms. These are also things that I highlight. Why is their Jewish quarter separated from, you know, the rest of um, the population? Things like that. And so the itinerary followed, for example, going to the Jewish cemetery, learning about its history. There is a nice museum towards the end of the cemetery. There are two synagogues that were you know, 17th century synagogues that were renovated recently, and they speak tons of also the diversity of the Moroccan Jewish population. So in Morocco, even though today we say Moroccan Jewry, actually within Moroccan Judaism, there are different categories, if I may say. There is a group of Jews that we call the Toshavim, and these are the Jews who arrived to North Africa more than 2,000 years ago. And so Toshavim, the word in Hebrew means the natives, the indigenous people. And actually when they arrived here, you know, back then we're not talking about any nation states or borders or whatsoever, right. who they found, like the, what they found in North Africa were Amazigh tribes. Mm-hmm. Amazigh maybe is, it is commonly known as the Berbers. These ah, are the okay. indigenous people of North Africa. Politically correct, we say Amazigh because that's how, you know, the Amazigh people identify themselves. Right. And Amazigh in the Amazigh language means free men. And Berber was actually given to them by the Romans, um, you know, because they did not speak Roman. And, you know, for Romans, whoever did not speak the language <laughs> is a barbarian. Right. And that's how, and actually with the coming of the Arabs, they somehow consolidated the use of the word of you know this oh, terminology wow this is the first group of jews in morocco so we call okay. them and not only morocco in north africa in general and these are called the toshavim the, the indigenous jews right. what happened this group was joined by another group of jews this time coming from the iberian peninsula in the iberian peninsula they, they expelled both jews and muslims mm-hmm. 
in the 15th century, more precisely in 1492. And because of proximity, a lot of these Jews and Muslims found refuge in Morocco. And so when they arrived to Morocco, they settled in various cities, mainly those that had already an existing Jewish population, such as Fez, Marrakesh, Tetuan, and what happened is, well, you would assume that, you know, two Jewish groups meeting each other, they will coexist and pray together in the same synagogue, for example. That was far from being the case. Really? They actually they expelled Jews that we call in Hebrew, Megorashim, mm-hmm. literally the expelled Jews, and who are Sephardim. You know, Sephard- today, maybe we know the dichotomy of like Ashkenazi Sephardi, mm-hmm. but it is more complicated than that because within the Sephardic world, there are different. So, for example, the Toshavim that I talked about earlier, the indigenous Jews, are not necessarily Sephardic, but only those who were expelled. But today, we just tend to mix everything up. And because, you know, to generalize the use of the word Sephardim to Jews coming not only from Spain and Portugal, but from the Arab and Muslim worlds. These two groups did not necessarily coexist. Two groups, two Jewish groups who did not exist, actually came with their own rabbis. They kept their own kashrut, you know, the kosher food. They had their own way of doing things. They had their own uh, rites, you know, prayers and um, music and singing, etc. So what they did is that they built their own synagogues within the Jewish quarter. And so that's why, for example, today in the Jewish quarter of of Fez, back to our original um, story, is you find, for example, a synagogue of the Toshavim, Mm. which is called El Fasiyin Synagogue. El Fasiyin meaning the people of Fez. And the Sephardim or the Migorashim, or the expelled Jews, they built another synagogue, which is today known as Ibn Danan Synagogue. Oh. And Ibn Danan actually is the descendant of Maimonides. Maimonides is this uh, 12th century philosopher and rabbi and physician who lived for a few years in Fez before moving to Egypt. You know, for someone like me that really just doesn't know about all of this history, it seems very complicated. And I guess that's where you know, having someone who knows about this to be able to guide people around is so valuable. So what are some of your favorite sites that you can see in in the Jewish quarter that you'd like to take people to that really give them the feel of the history, the culture, and just the feel of that place? Definitely, and you might find this surprising, definitely the Jewish cemetery. Interestingly, Jewish cemeteries in Morocco and maybe in other places in the Jewish world, we call them Beit HaChaim, which means the house of the living. Now, you might find that paradoxical, yeah. right? We're talking right. about cemetery. What do you mean? Like we're going to a place of the living. But because there is a notion in the Torah that says that when someone passes away, the body that is buried under the ground, but the soul goes up to the sky, somehow they can still hear you. They can, you know, you can still pray to them. And that's why there is a strong culture of saint veneration among Moroccan Jewry. So this means, you know, veneration. And there's also the word we have for it in Hebrew is Hilula. And Hilula is celebrating the anniversary of the death of a righteous person or rabbi by, you know, going to their tomb, uh, praying, singing, drinking a lot, you know, <laughs> and, pray, and also asking for favors from this rabbi. And there are a lot of stories about, you know, people who were healed because they went to venerate a certain rabbi or people who could not carry, you know, who could not conceive and they went to pray, for example, to Lala Sulika. Lala Sulika is a righteous woman who is buried in the cemetery of Fez and they could conceive. A lot of stories like that, you know. So going to the Jewish cemetery, it gives you a feel of 
layers of Moroccan Judaism. I mean, there are many people who say, oh, come on, this is superstition. Mm -hmm. Even if one would regard it as superstitious, but still it was important. It's the the culture. It's the culture. It is part of the culture. Right. Exactly. Which, interestingly enough, it continued even when Moroccan Jews left Morocco. This culture of saint veneration continued with them, for example, in Israel, where there are also a lot of tzaddikim, righteous people and rabbis where they are buried. So this is one of the sites. And it's also just a nice, peaceful place that is, you know, really well taken care of. Everything is whitewashed. It's very calm. It's a place really pretty much for meditation as well. Because after all, it also serves as a reminder. That is one, but also the synagogues. I think because the synagogues also, they they have a lot of stories. They And I will share with you one of these stories. Please. So earlier I mentioned a 17th century synagogue called El Fasiyin, that is found in the heart of the Jewish quarter in Fez. You know, starting from the 1950s and 1960s, a lot of Moroccan Jews left Morocco, either by choice, because they wanted to um, go to the Holy Land, to immigrate to the Holy Land, what we say, Aliyah, you know, to um, live in Jerusalem or in the Holy Land, or because they were compelled to leave because they started, there were some anti-Semitic feelings, there were, especially after the establishment of the state of Israel. Mm. So people left in masses, which means that they left also their houses, they left the synagogues, right? Who moved into these places were the Muslim families, Muslim friends, neighbors, etc. Mm. So this synagogue, al Fasin synagogue, was inhabited by a Muslim family for some years. And then it was turned into a gym. Wow. Yes. I was not expecting so that. The, I know. It is a fascinating wow. story <laughs> where, you know, the pillars, four pillars were actually turned into a boxing ring. Oh, that's so interesting. Huh. What is fascinating about this is the owner, who is a Muslim person, every Friday night, he used to light candles because he knew from his Jewish friends or Jewish neighbors that Jews light candles on Friday night, you know, to welcome the Sabbath. And he knew that place was holy and sacred. That was once a synagogue. So in respect of that sacred place, he he continued lighting candles. Wow. I was told this story actually by Simon Levy, Zechronol Levracha, who was may he rest in peace, who was a fast born Jew, who, uh, and he was actually also the director of the Jewish museum in Casablanca. And he, it was very much, that was the synagogue where he prayed with his family. And it was very much important for him to renovate, uh, first of all, to buy back the synagogue and renovate it and turn it back into what it was. He told me this story because that's how he heard it from the person, you know, that passed it on to him. And he knew this Muslim person, he knew that one day Jews will come back. And, you know, and when I say come back, not all the Jews left. Mm. There is still today a Jewish community living, you know, in Fez. The majority are based in Casablanca. We're talking, in terms of numbers, not a big number, about 2,000 people in okay. a population of about 34, 35 million, wow, which right. is almost nothing. Right. But still, it is a vibrant and meaningful community that is given a lot of regard by, you know, the government, by the king, by the rest of the population. You know, and that's something that, like I said, people don't know about that. I think that a lot of, at least people outside of, of Morocco probably just haven't heard these stories. And I think that's why what you do is really important. Part of these tours, I got to also give, um, let's say, VIP tours mm. to different um, 
stars is that's exaggerating <laughs> part of these tours i also got to meet and give tours to some renowned people be it like artists from israel and other places actually one of the ones i remember is um a tour to the ambassador of canada to spain wow who when they contacted me i was like you know the signature was very official so i was very proud you know to yeah. take it, to take them on a tour and they were really nice people down to earth also house of lords from the uk and i got myself an invitation to the house of lords wow but to be honest with you let's say the most remarkable tour that i've given was to a group of students from rocco eighth graders who um who study at the american school in fez And so in, in, together with their professor, we organized the tour to the Jewish Quarter. Now, in order to make it fun for them, you know, I had to think of interactive ways, you know, sure. some games to catch their attention. Right. And so I remember this, we played this game where, for example, well, you know how Hebrew and Arabic are really close as Semitic right. languages that sure. they can sometimes even sound the same, especially certain words. So I would, for example, give them a word in Hebrew and they have to... guess what is the word in arabic it's oh, equivalent fun, yeah. in arabic and they, they got really competitive and it was <laughs> so much fun and when we went to the museum um and i'm telling you this is a group of mostly muslim students mm -hmm. and this was their first their first encounter with the jewish um not i'm not going to say jewish community but the jewish history right because you know as i said even though there are still jews in Morocco today, but it's a very small number. Mm -hmm. So I'm telling you, for example, in Fez, there are about 30, 40 people left in oh, a wow. city of yeah. 2 million. Right. That's, so you yeah, barely smaller than I even Jew, thought. Right. right. And so when we reached the museum, the Jewish museum, mm -hmm. so I would give them an item, for example, that they need to look for. So be it a Torah scroll, um, some photographs, you know, a wedding dress. And they all had, you know, little tasks. that then they presented to cool. the group, what they gather, what they think they mean, how are they, you know, what do they know about them? What, you know, if they are similar, because let's face it, after all, most things that, you know, Moroccan Jews, you know, in Morocco, as Moroccan Jews, they had a lot on, a lot of things in common with the larger culture, right. that is Moroccan culture. And so the wedding dress would maybe differ a little bit from, you know, the Muslim wedding dress, for example, mm. but it'll be like the same materials, etc. Even actually religiously speaking, Islam and Judaism, they have a lot in common mm -hmm. in terms of the prayers, the fasting, the ablutions before prayers. And so these are also things that I highlighted during this tour, specific tour with these Muslim students. And it was fascinating to see how, you know, they learned something. It also, it opens up your... mind to sure. difference right. to people who are different from you to people that maybe until that point you only knew about them through media and we know how sometimes media can can distort certain images so right. so for me that was one of the most important and meaningful tours i have organized that's what i uh, wanted to share with you <laughs> i love that you know that reminds me so much of that quote by mark twain where he said that travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Once you start meeting people and hearing their stories, you kind of realize, you know, it's, it's the differences that make us interesting, but it's the similarities mm -hmm. that are really what's important. This is really interesting because, I mean, I, told, I couldn't agree with you more on that note mm -hmm. because in this specific context, 
these are, you know, these are people who live with you. These are people who share the same language, the same food, the same right. space. Still, they are somehow considered strangers or they are not within reach. And so it's, it does indeed feel like traveling right. in time and space to meet these people who could be your neighbors, who could be your doctor, who could be your friend. Well, was there anything that in your research just surprised you that you didn't know about? before you started sort of trying to discover it yourself? Well, remember when I said that a lot of Jews left Morocco starting from the 1950s and 60s, mm-hmm. one of the main destinations was actually Israel. Not only Israel. I mean, there was also France, Canada, etc. But the main destination where larger numbers uh, left and settled is um, Israel. The Moroccan Jewish population mm-hmm. in Israel constitutes the second largest ethnic group after the Russians. Wow. So that shows how, you know, the presence of Moroccan Jews and therefore not only, you know, and also their culture is very much visible here in Israel. The Moroccan Jewish population is the second largest here in Israel today, meaning that also the Moroccan culture, some aspects of the Moroccan Jewish culture have been transferred to Israel. And so, be it music, be it food, what actually surprised me when I moved to Israel in 2016 is how the second and third generations of Moroccan Jews, those who were born in Israel, they, they consider, first of all, they consider, they talk about themselves as Moroccans. Mm. So when they ask me, where are you from? I'll say, I'm Moroccan. They will be like, we're all Moroccans. Where are you from? <laughs> they, they just assume that I come somewhere from Israel, but then they're no, I'm really well, from Morocco. Actually from, and yeah. So, yeah, wow. Exactly. And that's where they're like, oh, okay. Interesting. And to tell you how for them, it is a big part of who they are, you know, of their identity, the identity. of how they understand themselves. Wow. And so they constructed for themselves a Moroccan identity, even without, sometimes even without being in Morocco, mm-hmm. just through, you know, the stories that they heard about Morocco, through what has been transmitted to them from their parents and grandparents. And so the music, for example, here in Israel, you can go to learn Moroccan music. Mm-hmm. Well, when I say Moroccan music, it's specific. There is music that is called Piutim, which is kind of sung liturgical poems that one can learn here, like with Moroccan melodies, with the, you know, maybe, you know, if you know of uh, Andalusian music. Mm. And so here it'll be sung, you know, with the melodies of Andalusian music. Wow. And I think it's just fascinating. So it, it was really surprising to see how the Moroccanness, if we may call it, um, through, as I said, through music, through food, through the language, mm. through the history, through, you know, the connection to Morocco is preserved here in Israel. That's really interesting. I guess that I'm not sure if this is just me theorizing, but I imagine it's something to do with the nature of, of Israel, kind of like the nature of the U.S., where you have people that are coming from many different parts of the world maintaining that aspect of their culture. And I guess there's just something about a country of immigrants like the U.S. or like Israel that encourages that, right? That encourages people to try to identify with their, their heritage. I must say that in the beginning of the state of Israel, that was not encouraged. Totally the opposite. Is that so? Yeah. It was, you know, with the first, you know, Israel as a place, you know, that ingathered all the exiles, mm-hmm. actually they wanted to mold all those identities, all those differences into one Israeli identity that oh. 
even back then, they did not figure out what is Israel identity. Is it, is it speaking Hebrew? Is it being white? Is it being Ashkenazi? Is it mm-hmm. being a kibbutznik, like part of the kibbutz, etc. But with the second and third generations of you know of different of different ethnicities here in Israel, mm-hmm. it is becoming even trendy to celebrate the difference but i think the process for example the first generation they went through is that they had to stop speaking the language the the original language they spoke and speak only hebrew they had to um, let go of some traditions of some customs of the old country and adapt to you know the country where they they that they were building right but now with the second and third generations there is a kind of reviving reconnecting reaffirming you know their um, original um, cultures and languages. And for example, again, I'm sorry, just because I love music. So I always yeah. go back to music and you can see how through music today, people want to sing the, the music of their original country. And it is in Arabic. And so you find, for example, well, one of the examples is Arabic. Not only, of course, there's also Ladino, there's Yiddish, there is different languages, you know, that the Jews spoke before arriving to Israel. And so this music, this music is performed in, you know, national theaters. Wow. And I find that fascinating and it's very powerful, you know, this ability to say, okay, I am Israeli, but I am also something else. I also come from, you know, I have this long history that predates, you know, even, you know, the state, the modern state of Israel. And I think that is very powerful to give, you know, to, to have that ability to express, you know, our both who we are and how individual we are, but at the same time belonging to a larger group. Wow. For outsiders who want to connect to a culture, it can be a little bit overwhelming or a little bit intimidating. Uh, People can feel shy or awkward or nervous. So if somebody is traveling, not necessarily in Morocco or Israel, but anywhere in the world, and they want to maybe understand some of this history, understand some of this story, how can they do that? What advice would you have for somebody that wants to learn more about a culture when they're traveling somewhere that's different for them? Well, first of all, I think we all do some research beforehand, right? Some internet yeah. research to try to learn, especially places that are new to us, because maybe common places, maybe we've learned about them, we've heard about yeah. them, but places that are new to us can be tricky. Yeah. I would say always getting in touch with the locals and coming really with with a humble personality and the modesty. Because sometimes, why I say that, because sometimes when we come from a certain place, we tend to compare, mm. you know, oh, back in my place, it's not like that. Back where I come from, it is not like that. And we're somehow, you know, blocked in that point of reference where yeah. we, don't, we cannot, you know, see beyond. Yeah. And so I'll just say with coming with open spirit, going with this adventurous sense, you know, exploring things, trying things out, even if they're, you know, new to you. So trying them for the first time could be also something that might, you know, open your mind about their world. And just, as you know, as an anthropologist, somehow just go in and try to live their their way of living, spending maybe one day where you can, you know, just take off your tourist hat Mm -hmm. and just try to adapt and to try out anything they offer you or that you could, you know, you can be part of, of course, with respect and, you know, with also humility. Right. No, I like that. Yeah. You know, this is a, a very small example, but one of the things I like to do when I'm traveling is go to a local supermarket. It's a very small version of that, but it's interesting because you think, oh, this is what the people that live here do. This is how they go shopping. And, and you see things that are 
fascinating. You know, I was in uh, Malaysia a couple of years ago and I went to the supermarket to get some, I don't know, just coffee or, or something to have at the hotel. And uh, Malaysia, of course, it's a predominantly Muslim country, but you know, there's also freedom of religion there. And so the supermarket had a section that I just thought it was really funny. It was called the non-halal corner. So you walk in there and you've got <laughs> walls of beer and you know all, <laughs> all this. Stuff. And I was like, well, that's such an interesting aspect of the culture here in Malaysia, you know, that you wouldn't see necessarily in, in the US or, or in other places that I've been here in Thailand. And, you know, it just kind of gives you a glimpse at that, yeah. that daily life, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I also personally love places of worship mm-hmm. because I find them very meaningful. I love to see how people and observe how people worship, how people, you know, uh, respect the religion, how they also many times they want you to be part of it. Even if you sit back, you mm-hmm. know, you want to go unnoticed they would stay, they would still invite you in and welcome you and maybe explain things to you. And I love that part. I remember when I was in India, I went to a temple and actually it was the anniversary of uh, Shiva. Mm. And I just loved it. I loved it so much. I love the mantras. And at some point they share some food, you know, some traditional food, you know, in for the, for the, for the holiday. And I was very happy, like to also get my share and, you know, eat it. And they, you know, you can see a smile on their face. This person who maybe has no idea what is going on is still open, you know, to willing to be part of of what we're doing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I love that. I love going to, you know, to mosques, to churches, to synagogues, and yeah, to places of worship, because I think religion is a big part, even if, you know, even if worship or not, even if we're believers or not, but it still has a big impact on our culture and our cultural, you know, um, traditions, and somehow also part of us, even indirectly or subconsciously. Um, And I love that. I love to be to, you know, a little bit to understand, you know, what this verse means or why do you worship like that or why uh, things also what, what is what is in common between different religions and different um, beliefs. Yeah, I love that as well. That's one of my favorite things to do, too. I think that's amazing. And it feels so good, uh, especially like you mentioned, when when people allow you to experience that with them, when you're sort of welcomed in that in that case, because religion is such a very personal thing. And it's such a great feeling when you are allowed to join in with that, you know, it really does give you that feeling like, well, I'm accepted here, you know, I'm, I'm part of things, even if like you said, even if I don't know exactly what's going on. Again, I feel like when it comes to people's beliefs, they are very willing to share, like imagine going to spend a Sabbath, you know, whole, you know, Friday night dinner, and maybe yeah. Saturday, with a Jewish family somewhere, or maybe experiencing uh, Eid al-Fitr, you know, which is the uh, after the month of Ramadan for Muslims. Mm. So there is a Eid um, holiday of Eid al-Fitr. So imagine like experiencing that, that joy of, you know, sharing the food and, you know, yeah. visiting friends and family or, you know, Christmas, of course. Yeah. I mean, we all love Christmas and it's yeah. been um, so that is, isn't that a pleasure just to be part of something that yes. is not necessarily, you know, part of your culture or how you grew up, but still you get to experience it, you mm-hmm. know, with the, with the family. Um, that's also definitely a way to learn not only about the holiday and, you know, the beliefs, but also about the culture in general and this, right. um, aspect of traditions. It just enriches you so much. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's see here. Let's talk about food as well. That's another big part of the culture. So 
when you're doing your tours, is food an element of that? Food is definitely part of it, part of my tours. Actually, it is what people... So my tours, normally they last for about four hours. And so the food is what people look forward to Mm. after the tour. And that's what keeps them focused (laughs) because that's the reward that they will deserve in the end of the tour. Right. And I always eat in Casablanca, Marrakesh or Fez, we will end the tour in the Jewish community center or in a kosher restaurant Mm. to experience the Moroccan Jewish food, you know, the kosher food with, you know, nice bottle of wine or some beer. Um, and because, you know, the food in, in the Moroccan Jewish food, again, it is very much similar to Moroccan food in general, mm-hmm. but there are some different dishes, you know, that are made different, differently. And for example, there is um, um, dafina that is known by its different names, either dafina or schina. Mm. And actually it is a kind of stew that is made, like that stays over um, over over the night in the oven, in the public oven. Mm. Because, you know, during the Sabbath, Jews are not allowed to cook. And right. so on Friday afternoon, you already, you know, put, well, today in modern um, ovens, you leave it in the oven, right? Cooking slowly and you eat it only on Saturday oh, wow. right. at noon or afternoon. Um, and that is actually one of uh, the main Moroccan Jewish dishes that Muslims love and they love to, you know, to experience it and to go to Jewish places to eat. Um, so that is an example. Now, Kyle was just texting me and I, I want to, he wanted me to figure out how to word this question. So he, he says, this is a message Kyle just sent. He says, so ask him to tell you about the relationship between the micro level of tourism, educational and relationship building and the macro level of understanding and cooperation in the region. He says, you might need to find a better way to word that. So let me see if I can figure <laughs> out what I want to say. This is the one thing he wanted me to ask. So, um, with with tourism, you know, tourism and traveling, that's sort of the uh, the micro level of uh, relationship building, you know, educational understanding. But what is the relationship between something like that, like you do, and the macro level of building understanding and cooperation throughout the region? Because that's a big issue, a very big issue in that part of the mm-hmm. world. Wow, that's a great question. Um, so for me, these tours are not only experiencing the Moroccan Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. It is not, of course, that is a big deal of it, right? That's a big right. part of what they are meant for. But also, when I give the tours, I also highlight, for example, Muslim-Jewish relations. I highlight the Islamic influence on Moroccan Judaism, the Sufi influence on Moroccan Judaism, and the other way around. And that, for example, if you do, like when you go to a Moroccan synagogue, if you are a Muslim from Morocco, it will all sound familiar but in a different language right. and maybe for a different religion right right but it is all it is all similar that shows how you know these two cultures these two religions these two um traditions they 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 communicated with each other they uh, influenced each other mm. when people know see that you know and they notice that and i also talked about the group earlier of muslim students young muslim students right. going to meet encounter these jewish places they understand in the end that there are a lot of things that are in common there are a lot of similarities you know that we kind of speak the same language mm. maybe different religions in different uh, prayer places mm-hmm. right but still we worship the same god and we have you know, the same goals in life. I think that inspires people, inspires people in the sense that if it is possible in Morocco, Jews and Muslims 
living together, even having influence on each other, mm-hmm. um, communicating in the same language. That, that is a model that can be exported to other places, mm-hmm. to other places probably with conflict, right? And today that Morocco, again, has you know, diplomatic relations with the state of Israel, now there is a lot of um, traveling back and forth and, you know, again, as you said, when you travel, you actually meet with people, you meet with the culture, you see how they are doing their things, how they're living, you know, things that they are successful in. And you, that's what you bring back home. That's what can inspire you. And that's what you want to import back home. And I believe that Morocco has a role to do in, um, in the Middle East, in bringing peace, in helping at least bridge building, like opening the dialogue, starting a dialogue. And I think Moroccan Jews, even in Israel, they've been part of that. Not only, of course, but many other, you know, uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians. But Morocco has this ability to, first of all, as a country with a long history of Judaism, as we talked about earlier, and with the role of the king as the commander of the faithful, who, you know, for Jews and Muslims are considered equals in Morocco, mm-hmm. at least today. I mean, there were in some historical um, eras where that was not necessarily the case because of the status they had of Dimis. But Morocco can give an example. Like, can sit back again, people on the table for discussion. And actually, just yesterday, I read on the news that, you know, the minister, the minister of Foreign Affairs in Morocco is willing to reopen dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. Wow. And I think that is, um, that, that can only be blessed and um, that can hopefully, I mean, we, we, we just can keep hope, right? Right. Um, to, you know, closing the gaps and bringing people together. Exactly. You know, as long as there's dialogue, there is hope. Going back to the previous point. So the defender of the faithful is that in regards to all, all faiths? Exactly. It is in regards of all faiths. That's brilliant. Yeah. And like Yes, so commander of the faithful. In Arabic, it says Amir al-Mu'minin, okay. meaning not only the Muslims, but all the believers. Wow. Whoever is, you know, who li- whoever, er- every religion that lives under the monarchy, you know, the king is considered the commander of the faithful and he has to assure uh, their protection and their freedom. Wow. So I think that is not something to take for granted. Definitely. That's really interesting. I had no idea about that. Wow. <laughs> I, I do think that's very important. And that's a really important symbol of the unity that you can find, even amidst the differences, Indeed. I think. Wow. Yes. Well, are there any uh, last uh, messages that you would like to give to the Attempt Adventure listeners? I can't wait for you to go visit Morocco. Mm. Um, you know, Morocco is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful country. You can find documentaries, you can find um, films about it, you can f- find books, etc. But I would say talk to people, uh, learn in Morocco. You know, in Morocco, the tricky part is that Moroccan Arabic is so different from the other Arabics that people might know, okay. even from the very different from the standard Arabic. So Moroccan Arabic can be tricky, but still we'll always find a way to communicate. Trust me, even if you don't speak a word in Arabic, mm or French, because also Moroccan, Moroccan people also speak French, um, you will always find a way to communicate. And Moroccan people are really hospitable. They're smiling. They, you know, it's, it's fun to be with. You know, they love to, to have a good time, to show you around. That's also something that is known um, uh, with Moroccans. Like we get really excited to show you places and historical places. 
Well, I think that's great. Well, if, if we ever if we ever get over Maybe. to Morocco, we'll bring our microphone on, and, and you can take us around the city, and, <laughs> and we'll make a special episode <laughs> an episode on the definitely. <laughs> I have one more. I have one more actually uh, sure, suggestion. Yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, that sometimes people combine Spain and Morocco, mm-hmm. and I love that. So either you start in Spain or in Morocco, because also these two countries they had also uh, centuries of history in common. And what I love most about you know, this journey is the ferry that you take from Tangier to Tarifa. Oh, I love it. So from the, yes, it is a fascinating experience. Now, I just, it's, it's just almost like a spiritual journey. First of all, it is not that far. It's you cross in 35 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. From, you know, the African continent to the European continent. Right. But as you're leaving, so if you're leaving from Morocco, so the last thing you see the skyline is like minarets and, you know, the muazin, Allahu Akbar, and, you know, all that kind of noise of the shuk, etc. And you reach another type of noise, another type of, you know, noise that is um, the church bells, right. Virgin Mary, right. uh, kind of the same noise, just a different language, a different vibe. And that is something that I find always fascinating that i always look forward to and of course it's beautiful to cross the mediterranean the strait of gibraltar that if you're lucky you can get to see dolphins also wow oh i love that (laughs) gotta go (laughs) i miss traveling so much (laughs) well well you know where can people find you if they want to go on a tour how can people find you and get in touch with you they can always find me on social media Mm -hmm. as uh yona elfasi that's how i go on social media and for Bab Mela, I also have Instagram and Facebook page called Bab Mela, B-A-B-M-E-L-L-A-H, uh, the Jewish Quarter. Okay. So, well, we'll put links and I would to love, you know, in the show notes as well. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. I love this kind of conversation. I love this kind of topic. And I had such a great time. I'm so glad we finally Me got the too. chance to do this. Yes, thank you so much. Hopefully, I can give you a tour in Morocco. <laughs> yes, I will, I will certainly hold you to that. And you're always welcome here in Thailand as well. I will. I, will I can't wait. <laughs> thank you so much. Very good. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Had a great time. All right. And we are back. So Yona, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so much fun talking to you. I really appreciate my brother for hooking us up and introducing us so that you could be on the show. And uh, as usual, there will be links to all of his stuff on our show notes at attemptedventure.com. We should give Kyle a producer credit. Yeah. Okay. That sounds fair. (laughs) (laughs) So Kyle, good news. (laughs) Put that on your resume. So yeah, so Yona, thanks so much for coming on the show, and uh, yeah, big shout out to to you. All right, James, it is time for our favorite segment, Adventures in the News, and this week it is my turn. Mine is actually a resource. It's gowildgowest.co.uk, and I'll put a link here. It's a site that encourages people to go out and have little mini adventures with their families, and these are adventures that you can do with kids, but they're also adventures I think that adults can do, and they're small things that are ideas of how you can add a little adventure into your life, which is exactly what we are all about here at Attempt mm-hmm. Adventure. We are all about micro-adventures. 100%. So just some of these, like Cook in the Wild, 
enjoy the sunset. Track an owl. How do you do that? How do you track an owl? I don't know. Build a cairn. Head to a hilltop and build a cairn. You know, stuff like that. Just like little things that you could do. You could do it by yourself. You could do it with friends. Uh, it's, it's geared towards families, but anyone could do them. And that's kind of my news. It's not exactly news, but since when is this segment ever really about news? So <laughs> it never is. It's usually funny stories or helpful tips. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being patient with us as we sort of try and figure our stuff out. We're doing our best and trying our hardest. Um, if you want more Attempt Adventure content, you can find us on all the social medias at Attempt Adventure on all of them. Um, you can visit our website at www.attemptadventure.com for great show notes, pictures, find all the episodes. It's a great thing. Contact us directly from that website. That's probably the best way to get a hold of us. And until next time, keep adventuring.